Welcome to the audio edition of the Bylines Network. In here, you'll find four articles from different publications in the network, read by our team of readers. Thank you to our writers for writing them and to our readers for recording them. We hope you enjoy. This culture of racism is not cricket. By Nabila Akhtar, published in West England Bylines. I see that Yorkshire County Cricket Club and the England and Wales Cricket Board are making headlines for a culture of racism that continues unabashed. We have multiple Asian and black cricketers dehumanised and degraded, racist slurs, casually used and racist action over a number of years. I am sure someone will read this amused and say these ethnic minorities, they just can't take a joke. Aside from the fact that ethnic minorities cannot be lumped together, the common denominator in racism is racism itself. It normalises behaviour which dehumanises and perpetuates itself. These are symptoms of institutional and systemic racism. I have seen so many news articles where the focus is on the men who engaged in racist language and action. These pieces are sympathetic towards the perpetrators, focusing on them rather than on those bullied and targeted. I see no reference to the research evidencing the different far-ranging ways in which racism harms. People were targeted not because of who they were, but because they were not white, and this was and remains acceptable. Is it uncomfortable to bring the focus to the hurt and harm this causes to the people targeted? The way it marginalises, the power dynamics that it creates, that equate Asian and black people with a dog? I'm quite sure it is. Azim Rafiq has described continuing to be failed at every point over and over on reporting his experience. We are now watching this happen much more publicly. This is again all too familiar too. There is a higher standard for the Azim Rafiqs and any other black or Asian figure who speaks on racism and this distracts from actually changing things for the better. Azim Rafiq summed it up when he said, The lack of diversity demonstrates just how racism thrives. Across societal institutions, it's about power, dominance, and how it is used to disadvantage those of us who look different. Azim Rafiq emotionally detailed some of the racism and Islamophobia he has faced to a parliamentary select committee. On social media, common responses included, How dare he? He should be grateful he had the opportunity and apparently he wasn't good enough. What would it take for Azim Rafiq to be considered good enough and worthy of the sympathy and empathy his fellow cricketers and other colleagues have casually continued to receive? It is far from only Rafiq, but many others who suffer this way. Racism in and outside cricket, starting as children. They encounter problems as soon as they speak of their experiences, but the racism starts well before. I notice a column describing Azim Rafiq as courageous and a hero. I'm not sure this is what Azim Rafiq or others seek. A hero tag is inadequate, dehumanises in its expectation of perfection. Hero is a label loaded with its own dehumanising, especially when it doesn't mean change and better. Why is Azim Rafiq going through all this? No, it's not for money, fame or prestige. It's a costly and painful process to be heard. Because he has to, and for some kind of justice, for children and young men going through these systems now and in the future. He will carry this pain even as he works to move forward, as will his family. This is the legacy. Apparently there has to be someone to blame, and for too many the only somewhat comfortable choice is one of the victims. In this case, Azim Rafiq. By fighting for justice, 
He's labelled not only Kevin, but the problem. For too many, the others who raise concerns aren't worthy of attention. Not now that they've made Azim Rafiq a troublemaking scapegoat. A friend commented, This is appalling, and I think we're only seeing the start of this. How can anyone regard this level of abuse as banter? I can think of few Asian people or black people for whom this will be a surprise or unfamiliar. It is, of course, difficult for any racialized person to speak on experiences of racism, as they typically come with worse maltreatment. I say racialized because we are talking about people who have been marginalized and seen only through harmful hierarchical attitudes on race, people not truly visible, only vague outlines to be othered, seen as different in a way that means less. These are familiar experiences and stories. Too many won't speak on these, especially to a white person, because of the very familiar tendency to minimise. Yes, including those well-intentioned people who consider themselves allies. Someone will always get angry and defensive or reference a non-existent race card, as though there is a power in being racially marginalised, despite all evidence to the contrary. The norms of racism, institutional and systemic, are widespread and changing them takes effort. Of course, if you don't experience racism, it is easier to deny and minimise. This is true of other marginalising experiences too. If you don't experience sexism or homophobia, you're less likely to believe accounts of such experience. It's uncomfortable to accept and easier to lash out. We have most of us experienced some unfair treatment at some point. Think of that and it dialed up and pause. Be human, show heart, break the cycle. This isn't blame or shame, but about the hurt created by doing anything else. Tangahen Las Forest Initiative Deteriorating Ecotourism in Indonesia by Razdi Wangsa, read by Maddie Griffiths. In Indonesia, a forest ecotourism project is at risk of being abandoned in order for deforestation and mining to take place, putting a rare and pristine ecosystem at huge risk. A group of local people have come together in an attempt to save the project in the village of Tangahen on the island of Kalimantan in Indonesia. All they need is £1,300. The forest around Tankahen has been heavily logged and has faced destruction for many years. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the area was seeing a rise in ecotourism. Tourism has been thwarted since 2020, and this has prompted a group of local villagers to create Last Forest Initiative, known as the TLFI, which seeks to promote agroforestry in order to restore the forest in conjunction with promoting tourism. Tankahen has a population of 1,635 people. Across the village, education levels vary, and many of the local people undertake manual jobs, including gold mining and farming, which are often detrimental to the land. As a former HPH concession, a government-allocated area designated for logging, Tankahen Forest was logged by companies between the 1960s and 1980s. In 2015, the area came under control of the Kaltang Green Resource Industrial Plantation, whose concession area was granted to surround the entire forest area of Tankanhen village. This forest area is a secondary forest, regrown after falling, with thin peat which is prone to burning during the dry season. The combined threats of fire damage and heavy logging puts the Tankahen village at huge risk. 
LPHD is managed by 22 people, led by one chairperson. Their ecotourism group made surveys in 2019 to understand the potential of village forests. As a product of these surveys, LPHD created an ecotourism business plan, which helped to develop tourism in the area. And in the last six months from the end of 2019 until February 2020, the forest has had 200 visitors, both domestic and international. However, the COVID-19 pandemic has caused stagnation in tourism visits and since March 2020, the forest has seen no tourists at all. Not only is this bad for the area, it has also caused demotivation for the members and management of LPHD. If tourism continues to stall, many people will seek other jobs in order to provide for themselves. This will see activities such as gold mining and illegal logging in the central Kalimantan green concession increase. The Tankan Hen Last Forest Initiative is a small community project created by the people residing in the village itself. Agroforestry in Tankan Hen Forest incorporates fisheries and animal husbandry pastures, as well as crops including local rice, fruit and vegetables. The initiative aim is to strengthen farmers' agroforestry lands and to help manage them in an organic manner. To ensure success on the initiative, an initial incentive fund of 25 million Indonesian rupiah is required, approximately £1,304. This fund will be used to implement organic agroforestry, training for LPHD member farms, as well as the procurement of local plant seeds and seedlings to reinstate the local ecosystem. There are also plans to sell organic agriculture products as part of the tourism drive by including them in the price of ecotourism packages and combining them with the marketing of local markets. If these funds are raised, they will be handled to and managed by the LPHD management team and monitored by the South and Central Kalimantan government to ensure the purpose of the funds is achieved. This beautiful and diverse area deserves the injection of compassion and money it needs to have its dedicated local people protect it. To donate to the project's fundraiser, head to Save Tankahen Last Forest Central, Kalimantan, Indonesia. Action and Last on Second Homes by Martin Waller, read by Steve Whitley. A high proportion of second homes profoundly affects communities and sends house prices soaring. There are measures local authorities can take to curb this practice. Cornwall County Council has announced plans to crack down on the number of second homes in its area, including charging owners more and making it more difficult to convert an existing locally owned property to one. This is, I think, becoming an enormous issue in some parts of the country, where incomers able to pay amounts of money for a second home are pricing natives out of the housing market. It's becoming one of the fault lines I have suggested before in current national politics. An opposition party could exploit this by using the anger felt by locals as a way of differentiating itself from the current government, which seems relaxed on the subject. I wonder why. Cornwall is one of the areas worst hit by this. The latest figures I can find from 2018 to 2019 suggest that the proportion of second homes in the southwest is 27%. A staggering one in four homes owned by outsiders who barely live there. This means that those homes are taken off the market and largely unaffordable to locals, young families and the like, and the sort of people who work in the hospitality industry serving the needs of those second home holidaymakers. In the east of England, the proportion of second homes is 9% 
a little lower than Yorkshire and Humberside, but well above the northeast at 6%. There's a reason for this. The east of England includes areas such as Newmarket, Bury and Cambridge, which are all very expensive in relative terms and less attractive to second homeowners. It also includes towns such as Southwold and Alderborough, where this has been an issue for years and where the numbers are quite startling. In Alderborough, the proportion five years ago was just less than a third, in Southwold slightly more. Those proportions will have grown since. When we moved to Suffolk two years ago, we deliberately ruled out those areas with a high percentage of second home ownership, in part for that reason. It seemed, no exaggeration, like living in an occupied country, as one of the occupiers. The campaign against second homes in Wales in the 1980s sparked an amount of arson. Desperate people do desperate things. The Cornish councillors are proposing a number of options. Some are mere window dressing, it seems, working towards ending homelessness, more affordable housing. They also discussed plans at the Economic Growth and Development Overview and Scrutiny Committee this week to ask the government to be allowed to charge double council tax on a second home and to require planning permission to be granted when switching a property to a second home. This is an idea that is going to gain traction in other areas affected, such as Suffolk Coastal. This is, as I say, an open goal for opposition parties. That double taxation is not enough. The rate has to be levied higher, though not to a level that discourages holidaymakers from coming here and boosting the local economy. This is definitely not to demonise second homeowners, who, as I suggest, bring a degree of prosperity to areas that need it. Still, it's hard to see how this doesn't win on the doorstep among voters who are unhappy about the growth of second home ownership. Meanwhile, those second homeowners probably don't vote here. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Voices of Britain. Thank you to all of our writers and to the people who recorded these articles. Most of all, thank you to our brilliant editor, Julian Greenbank. We hope that you enjoyed this week's show.